0: From PRX, it's the radio variety show that can never remember its password. Live Wire. Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's LiveWire with author Tim O'Brien, writer and illustrator Mira Jacob. With music from Edna Vazquez and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank.
1: Wow. Thank you very much, Elena Passarello. And thank you, everybody, for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Woo-hoo. Uh, We are here this week uh, as part of the Portland Book Festival. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting for us, one of our favorite times of the year. Um, We decided on the theme this week of Truth Be Told. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, as everybody knows, these are all nonfiction books that we're going to be featuring on this episode of the show. On that theme, we, we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater to fill out a little comment card. The question to them was, tell us a secret. I feel like... We've never had one of these audience cards that could go more wrong. Like if someone writes shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, I think we have to lock down the building and just start fingerprinting everybody. It's only fair, Elena, that if we ask the audience to to share a secret with us, then we probably should do the same. I have one for you. Um, I flipped off a truck of very tough looking guys today (laughs) in Portland during a jog. (laughs) And it was a terrible idea Um, I picked this little route to go on a run And it just happened to take me across something called the St. John's Bridge Mm -hmm. Here in in Portland, which I have driven over But let me tell you, running over the St. John's Bridge is a very different experience Yeah, I can't imagine It is so high (laughs) Up, above the ground and water And at some point I looked over and basically the guardrail is, I don't know, three feet tall. I am six feet tall. So that's like half of me is being protected. I didn't realize until I got midway up just how high over the water it was. And then I was overtaken by an anxiety that was so intense. Mm. you ever had that thing where your legs start to go kind of yeah. weak? Your body tells you
0: that you're in trouble. Yes. Yeah.
1: What I wanted to do was just sit down and start clinging to the, to the protective barrier but I realized that like, the way to get off the bridge the fastest was to run, so I did. I start running down the hill now, back towards the neighborhood of St. John's, and a huge truck, not like a semi-truck, but like an American-made pickup yeah. truck, just goes past me with so much speed and creates so much just kind of, I don't know, wind energy around it that... I, I, no, I don't want to make it... I was, a, I was in no danger of actually falling off the bridge, but it did blow me over a little bit. And all this fear that I was feeling immediately converted into white-hot rage. Ah, here we go. It was a real clowns-to-the-left-of-me, death-to-my-right situation. Ah, nice. And so the only thing that you could do was shoot the bird? Flip them off out of just immediate, like, survival instinct. Huh. They say fight flight, or middle finger. Those are the three responses that people have in crisis.
0: Fight, flight, flip.
1: Yep. That's it. That's right. So I guess my secret is that I still have impulse control problems, Ah. which is not a secret to anybody who's known me for even five minutes. Actually, our executive producer, Laura Haddon pointed out backstage before the show. She goes, you know, this happened like five hours ago. Is that really a secret Mm -hmm. to you? It's like, yeah, if I have something inside for more than 20 minutes, it's become a secret. <laughs> it's a deep, deeply buried secret. That was the longest five hours of my life keeping that in.
0: Well, I'm glad we could help. We could be your Thank little you. confessional booth. How about you? What, what's, like? Can you tell us a secret? Yeah, I have a book-related secret since okay. this is the book festival show. Yeah. There are several titles of very famous books that I pretend to have read, but in fact, I have not. Not books related to this
1: episode of the show, but just... I've read
0: every single one of these books and love them. That's 100% true. But, like, famous books or people reference these books. Canonical books. And sometimes I reference them
1: pretending like I read them.
0: Like, I have said so many times, and I think on this show, oh, that's a real Madeline Cookie moment, which is a reference to Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, which is the kind of book that could, like, flatten art it's so big and there's like four of them like it's a real doorstop book and, and my partner David has read it several times and he's told me several passages from it so sometimes I'll be talking to someone and I'll be like oh you know that moment in Proust where he watches the butterfly move from one hedge to the other hedge and says that's what it's like to be around young women but I've never read the book and I, I also think that no one has actually read Finnegan's Wake <laughs> I think anyone who says that they've read Finnegan's Wake, including people with PhD scholarships. People in... who
1: are related to Finnegan, yeah. his loved ones that were left behind, even they haven't read his wake.
0: Yeah, uh, and obviously you have not read
1: Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> this might be a good time to move on to some of the audience feedback, Elena. Um, what's the audience here saying uh, when, when asked to tell us a secret?
0: Here's one from Jan. Jan, I had barbecue in a brothel and I liked it.
1: It's also a Katy Perry song. (laughs) That is a thing here in Portland, by the way, with the strip clubs. There's one that is known as a vegan strip club. But I feel like for me personally, those are not two art forms I need to have at the same time. Word. Quality food and quality adult entertainment. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay.
0: Yeah. How about this one from Chris. I pretended I was 65 to get the 10% discount at New Seasons.
2: <laughs>
0: Good idea. Uh, Chris is actually 32 years old. Yeah. He got like a, a, like a cotton ball beard. and he As long as the trial
1: is held in Portland, the jury will not convict him. <laughs> I think everyone will be like, yeah, we get it. Uh, this is Live Wire Radio from PRX. Our theme this week is Truth Be Told. And speaking of the truth... We've got somebody waiting in the wings who's been truthfully writing about the world for years now. He's the acclaimed author of The Things They Carried, and his latest offering is titled Dad's Maybe Book. Please welcome Tim O'Brien to (laughs) LiveWire. Tim, welcome to LiveWire. Well, thank you. This uh, book revolves around the idea, and not just the idea, but the reality that you became a father very late in your life. Uh, How old were you at that point?
3: I was 56 for the first and 156 for the second. (laughs) 58 for the second.
1: Wow. And the kind of theme of this book is, is really that you were writing... Uh, kind of a love letter to them and advice about the world and you had to create something that will be there for them when you're not around anymore. Um, Was this like a a sad book to write or what did it feel like?
3: It feels a mixture of sad and very funny. It goes back and forth the way life does. It occurred to me when I had my first kid that, that I would be known by that kid when he finally gets to know me as an old man so i began leaving little messages in a bottle little two or three page vignettes about my life their life stories about things they were doing and the things i had done vietnam my struggles to write books uh and my life as
1: a father so you were you were just writing these little things down when did you think oh this might actually be a book my younger son, Tad, came into
3: my office one day and he saw 30 pages or so and asked if it was a book, and I said no. There were messages for when he was in his middle age and I was dead. <laughs> so uh, he said, uh, well, what if there are more pages, will it be a book? And I said maybe, and then very sternly he said to me, well, you've got to tell the truth, Dad, and call it what it is. Call it your maybe book, <laughs> which I chuckled at. And then later, after he'd gone to bed, it occurred to me that my whole life has been organized around the principle of maybe Maybe my dreams will come true. Maybe they won't. Maybe there'll be a tomorrow. Maybe there won't. Uh, in Vietnam, that was especially a problem. Every step was a maybe step my area of operations was very heavily mined. So I went with my son's title. It's not a parenting book. I can't even give myself advice about how to be a parent, so it's certainly not that. It's a story about being a human being in the world we live in now. And if nothing else, the book is my my capstone or more appropriately, my tombstone (laughs) for my life it's going to be there as the last book
1: Wow, uh, this is live wire radio. We are uh, coming to you as part of the Portland Book Festival this week we 're talking to Tim O'Brien. Uh, his latest book is dad 's maybe book um why Why was it that you were uninterested in having kids until your sounds like your uh at that time girlfriend now wife talked you into it but like why why were you hesitant
3: well i i uh I was afraid I'd be a bad father. uh, I write 12 hours, 15 hours a day. And the other parts of the day, I'm worried about what I'm writing. Is the scene any good? (laughs) Will anybody like it? Will I like it? All the things writers worry about. And uh, you can't be a good father if you're not present, and I wouldn't have been present, so I was scared. And uh, my my wife-to-be and I nearly broke up. She wanted kids very, very badly and I didn't, so we split up for two or three weeks. She thought I was selfish, and it sort of bothered me that she liked the idea of something that didn't exist more than she liked me, Mm. (laughs) and uh, I found that troublesome. So we met in a bar in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we were living. She told me her life story, I told her mine, and, she had had a. She has two sisters. Had two sisters, one of whom was committed to a mental institution when my wife was in tenth grade, and is still there and will be there until she dies. And the other sister, one day, drove her car at eighty miles an hour into a church in Poughkeepsie and died, of suicide. Mm. And I told her my story of an alcoholic dad and a house full of tension and bitterness and so on. And in the course of exchanging these stories, we realized we both wanted the same thing, kind of a stable and a happy family life.
1: But as we'll get to when we come back from a quick break, your first son, Tim, comes out and it's like anything but stable uh, <laughs> the first uh, few months with him, which we're going to talk about in a moment. We're talking to Tim O'Brien. his new book is Dad's Maybe book. This is Live wire radio from PRX and we'll be back in a moment) Hey, have you subscribed to the LiveWire newsletter yet? Every week we share live show dates there as well as peaks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireradio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire. From PRX, my name's Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello, we're at the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, coming to you as part of the Portland Book Festival this week, and we're talking to writer Tim O'Brien, his latest book is Dad's Maybe Book, which uh, is, a, is, is a series, started as a series of notes and observations and memories that you wanted to pass on to your sons because you, you ended up having kids uh, at a pretty advanced age and you realized at some point you weren't going to be around to do a lot of the stuff that dads who maybe have kids in their 20s or 30s or even 40s uh, might do. Uh, and, and then before the break, you said that you and your wife agreed that you wanted a stable, happy home and that kids could be part of that. And then your son Tim comes along and he is inconsolable.
3: Yeah, the kid cried from the instant he was out of the womb for six straight weeks without uh, stopping. Uh, It wasn't even crying. It was sort of shrieking, hissing, uh, endless. He cried when he was hungry. He cried when he wasn't hungry. Cried when he was in the crib. So we kept calling the pediatrician. We were rookie parents. And the pediatrician would say, babies cry, (laughs) as if we didn't know. We were listening to it. And one day, uh, my wife caught the infection, and she began crying outside his uh, bedroom door. And I didn't didn't plan it. I just did it. I put us in a car and drove to an emergency room. And seven hours later, we emerged with three prescriptions, one of Xanax for me to kind of calm me down, one for my wife, and a prescription for Prilosec for Timmy, the kid who was crying, it turned out he had acid reflux disease. We didn't you know, know mm. what it was. And as soon as they, they, the pills were administered, I calmed down, Meredith calmed down, and the boy calmed down. It's amazing what modern medicine can do. Mm.
1: So this was acid reflux, but at the, before you got that diagnosis and before you were able to fix it, I mean, not to try to sort of uh, force a comparison that may or may not be accurate, but I mean, did it remind you to some degree of being in war? Yeah, it did a lot.
3: You know, one minute in a war, you're full of horror and terror, and you're scared out of your mind, and then it sort of peters out like a rain ends. That's how battles will go away. And you're shocked by the silence around you, and that's what it felt in that house afterward. It's a shocking new silence. Uh,
1: We're talking to Tim O'Brien here on Livewire. You're very well known for your book, The Things They Carried, and... uh, And yet, in this new book of yours, you talk about that you kind of have an uncomfortable relationship with the idea that people think of you as a war writer.
3: Mm. Yeah. Well, One day, we were on vacation, and we were staying in this hotel with a very narrow balcony in the Bahamas. And I was out at three in the morning writing this book. And my younger boy woke up, came out, and he asked me, what are you writing about? And I said, I'm writing about being called a war writer. And he said, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a peace writer. And I said, on top of that, they don't call Joseph Conrad an ocean writer, hmm. and porpoises and you know marine biology. He said, who's Joseph Conrad? <laughs> so I had to stop and explain that a little bit. And then he looked down at what I was writing and there was an F word in there about being called a effing war writer. And he said, you, to be careful that you don't ever, you know, print this book. Uh, you could get in big trouble.
1: <laughs>
3: and then he started to go back into the room, and he said, well, you know, he stuck his head out, and he said, uh, why don't you just tell them to go F themselves? <laughs> <laughs> and he had a point, so I left it in. <laughs>
1: But I mean, you are a connection to, you know, we've, we've lost many people who fought in World War II and the Korean War, and now Vietnam veterans are sort of the next wave of people who have this experience of being in those wars, but we also have what some people call a forever war. I saw a Time Magazine cover the other day in the store, and it was a 17-year-old woman who was about to deploy to a war that was started before she was born. Mm-hmm. You've actually been there, you've, actually, you've, you've experienced it. What has that taught you about the warmongering of this country over the years?
3: Well, the main thing uh, is, uh, there's a little anecdote that explains what it taught me. One day, my older boy, Timmy, said to me, are you a pacifist? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what if somebody broke into the house and had a gun and threatened to kill me? What would you do? And I said, well, I'd try to talk to him. And Timmy stared at me as if I was a father who had just deserted him. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he said, yeah, but what if it's really a mean guy and his finger is twitching on the trigger? What would you do? Would you kill him? And I said, yeah, or at least I'd try to. And Timmy stared at me again in a different kind of way. And he said what kind of pacifist is that?" (laughs) (laughs) And I said, the father kind. That I'm so terrified of absolutism that even my most deeply held values about this, stop slaughtering people, is tempered somewhat when my my own child would be, uh, you know, facing imminent death. So that is what I brought back with me from Vietnam is to watch out for absolutism, even from my own mouth. It can kill people.
1: Um, what are you hoping that your sons will take away from, from this book of yours? Uh, and also, what are you hoping that just strangers who read it, what will be their experience with it? Uh, that
3: old age is terrible, but it's not the, quite the end. Well, I guess it is the end of the world, in a sense. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: I hope to God one of these stations is going into a fundraising pitch right now. It's right after that, ray of sunshine from Tim O'Brien. Right,
3: ray of sunshine.
1: I'll give you an example. So my
3: younger son, Tad, and I are watching a Celtics-Lakers game one night. Tight, exciting game. And uh, it was coming near the end of it. And out of nowhere, Tad turned and said, Hey, Dad, that guy in the Bible... Methuselah. How old was he? And, the, and I said, I don't know, maybe a thousand years old. And then we went, Tad said, wow. And then we went back to watching the game, but I could feel him studying me. <laughs> and, and maybe a half an hour later, he said, what exactly did he eat? <laughs> And I, I kind of laughed, but as soon as he went to bed that night, I realized he was thinking of this guy, me, as M- Methuselah. And the question about what did he eat was, how can I, give him, can I give him some broccoli to keep him alive for a little longer? So that is what I want people to sort of take from it, is the joy of uh, humanity and the joy of love. Uh, My son was older son was cut from his basketball team in ninth grade, Mm. and it was heartbreaking. It was catastrophic, and it just ended his world. He stopped going to basketball games, couldn't hang out with his friends anymore, and then one night, he came out from his bedroom door. I was lying on the couch reading a book, and he's a tall, now a tall, 16-year-old, skinny uh, teenager, and he... Got under the couch with me, this you know six foot three guy, and cuddled me, and he said, "I probably wasn't good enough," and I said, "No, probably not." And then he said, "But Dad, I love you so much," and to have those words made putting big balls in holes seem so, so preposterously unimportant and, and, uh, and out of the uh, and so out of this catastrophe came one of the most beautiful moments of my life that I had been yearning for those words ever since he was like seven years old they came out of the mouth of a, of a teenager
1: yeah Tim O'Brien everybody the book is dad's maybe book thanks for being on live Wire. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is LiveWire Radio from PRX. Our theme this week is truth be told, and we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater to tell us a secret, and they wrote those secrets down on uh, little comment cards, and they've passed them up to the stage, and Elena Passarelli, you've been collecting them up. Uh, What kind of secrets are they sharing with us?
0: Here's one from Delia. I don't have a dog of my own, but when I watch Friends Dogs and take the dog out on a walk and the dog goes poop, I take out the plastic poop bag and bend down and pretend to pick up the poop. But okay. I don't really pick up the poop because I don't want to carry warm poop on the rest of my walk, and it's not really my dog, so I shouldn't have to. Pretty long answer.
1: All right. Lock the doors. <laughs> Nobody leaves this theater until we figure out who Delia is. <laughs> I am so the opposite of Delia in that I feel like it is the, it is our sacred duty as dog owners. <laughs> Your
0: sacred duty. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I planned that
1: out to pick up our, our dog's leave-ins. In fact, if, if my dog is going to the bathroom on someone's grass in the neighborhood when she's out for a walk, I start pulling the bag out like Joe Bluth doing a magic trick with scarves. I'm waving the bag. I want everybody in the neighborhood to know that I am definitely picking this up.
0: Here's one from Ian. Ian, I haven't seen Hamilton yet, and I may never anytime soon.
1: Yeah. That's a hot take. I made a joke about that. I'm I'm not joking. I was in Hamilton, Missouri a few days ago, the quilting capital of the United States, not to brag. And they said something about Hamilton and I made a joke. They said, talk about Hamilton a little bit. Like they needed it for a check of my microphone I was wearing, the TV people I was working for. They said, talk about Hamilton. And I said, "Eh, a little overrated. And then everybody in Hamilton, Missouri thought I was talking about Hamilton, Missouri. Uh. And I was like, no, I meant Hamilton the Musical. Then they were more mad at me.
0: Oh. Um, you want one more? Yes, please. This is from Lisa. I exclusively watch the movies of the books for my book club, but still bring a hard copy with me and talk about the writing. Anyway.
1: Oh my God. That is so great. Because it's not just that you saw the movie, but it's that you then went to the work of buying the book and bringing it to very willfully deceive the people in the book club. (laughs) This is Live Wire Radio. Our theme this week is truth be told. And so often, it's only when we're able to have real conversations that the truth about ourselves and the people we love can actually come out. that is exactly what our next guest has captured in her amazing book, Good Talk, a memoir in conversations. It's a graphic novel that explores identity, interracial families, and those real sometimes difficult things that come up in conversation, like finding out that your in-laws are standing on a corner in Florida holding up pro-Donald Trump signs, among other things. Please welcome Mira Jacob to LiveWire. Mira, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, you and I actually met some months ago because another guest, Mitchell Jackson, who'd been on the show, was at a literary event that you were also in town for, and I was asking you about this book, which I had never seen, and you were describing it to me, and it sounded kind of interesting, but I honestly thought that you had just like cut out a couple things, glued them on, like made a zine or something, yeah. but you did not. You made this incredible book, which is such a great way to tell this story. Had you ever done anything like that before?
4: I had not. In fact, um, when I sold the book, which was a kind of wild thing, I did a 100-page proposal and I wrote a lot of it out so people could kind of understand how the conversation part of it worked. Um, But I said, yeah, I'm going to draw this book. And and I was like, you know, they're definitely going to ask me, can you draw? (laughs) And no one ever did. (laughs) Which is really wild because then I kind of had to teach myself how to draw.
1: Because you are you you were a writer and are a writer. You'd written a novel before, but yeah. this is a totally new thing. Yes. But people just assumed that you knew how to draw?
4: Well, I had drawn one piece of it and they had seen that piece up, but what they didn't know was that it took me like twenty-five hours to draw a single nose. <laughs> So in the, in the moments after I sold the book, I was like, yay, oh, God. Um, and, then I, and then I watched a lot of YouTube videos on how to draw noses. And that's a thing, just in case anyone else needs to draw a nose, there's a, lot of, there's a whole thing called Tasty Toots on YouTube. Gross, but not gross. It's actually tutorials on how to draw.
1: I guess my question would be, if you didn't have a background in drawing things and you'd already written a novel why didn't you decide to tell the this is a story, really, of your relationship with your son and your husband and your in-laws and what it's been like for you to be a brown person in this country, et cetera, et cetera? Why did you decide to tackle it through the form of graphic novel?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's not just because I'm, you know, a masochist. So what... <laughs> a little. Um, so what happened was my son... So my son was six. He was super obsessed with Michael Jackson... I'm brown, my husband is white, he lands somewhere between us on the color scale, and when he got obsessed with Michael Jackson, we're like, okay, so we're going to give him the album so he doesn't skip around in the music. Here's a crazy thing, if you send a six-year-old alone to his room with every Michael Jackson album, he comes out with questions. Yeah. (laughs) Some are like really sweet, like what happened to his other glove. Like totally yeah. legitimate question. Or like, is that how people walk on the moon? Also legitimate question. Yeah. Um, I think
1: the answer is yes, by the way, on that one.
4: <laughs> and then, um, but then he was, then one day he was looking at him and he goes, let me, um, Michael, is Michael Jackson, is he brown or is he white? And I was like, yeah. And I said, so, oh, you know, the, the, well, um, so Michael Jackson is black, which means his skin is brown And then he sort of turned white. And he goes, he turned white? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he goes, am I? And I was like, no, you're not going to turn white. And he goes, daddy? I was like, daddy's already white. And he goes, was he always?
1: (laughs) Does he have the other glove?
4: (laughs) And I was like, oh, great. There it goes. Therapy. It's (laughs) happening right now. Um, I've messed my ruined my child. Um, but then, you know, as that was happening, the protests in Ferguson were happening. We live in New York. He was seeing the streets shut down. And actually, the president, the current president, was sort of on the rise. That was happening. And all of this was filtering into his brain, and he was asking me these questions, and some of them were really, you know, he one day turned to me on the subway and in this very sweet chirp goes, Are white people afraid of brown people? And the whole subway went quiet. And, like, in that moment, I was clocking the race of every person around me. And there's, like, the white hipster couple just apologizing with their entire face. There's a black woman next to me. I was like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. And there's this guy across me. He's kind of giving me this look. And I was like, what's that look? And I just was like, what do I say? What do I say? Because I don't want to lie to him because my parents came here at a certain time in a place where they just didn't want to see any kind of racism around us. And I didn't want him to think that his mom was going to be a liar. So what I ended up saying to him was sometimes, I said, well, how do you know? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, how do you know which ones are afraid of you? And I said, well, you don't always. And that night I went home and after I put him to bed, I just sat in the bathroom, which is the only place you can sit alone in a New York city apartment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, I, um, and I just sat and I was like, what did I do? What did I say? But so many conversations started happening like that. And then the next night when I was putting him to bed, he was like, is daddy afraid of us? And yeah, right? And, um, and I was like, no. But I could see the wheels turning. I could see that he was asking himself questions that I definitely wasn't prepared for. And he was sort of like this sweet, sort of benevolent alien asking me these questions that I just was like, I don't know how to answer you. So normally what I would do in that situation is I would write an essay. But when I thought about writing the essay, I thought about how it would go out on the internet, and I would thought about all the incredibly lovely people that talk to you when you write an essay about race on the internet. It's oh, a great right. thing. Highly recommend it. Um, and, I, and actually, I'm used to those people coming for me um, I'm used to those people saying, that didn't happen, and you're lying, and whatever, that happens. But I, I'm not used to them coming for him. And the idea that they could come for him was terrifying. So in total, kind of, I was just in this, I was like, what? I don't know what to do with the thing in my brain. And I just drew us very quickly on printer paper, and I cut us out, and I ran to his room, and I got the Michael Jackson albums, and I put them across the dining room table. And then I just put us on top of them and started drawing the conversation, and cutting it out and drawing it and cutting it out and then standing on my table and looking down and taking pictures of it, which is not a great way to do art, by the way. But, um, but I did that, and that's how that book started. Wow. <laughs> What is it about this particular situation
0: that isn't a write a essay situation, in addition to the fact that it's content that involves your son that, that has this visual impulse? Is it is it yeah. that it's conversational or
4: It's two things. So one is that um, when you're trying to write about this stuff in an essay, every every single line you write is a way for somebody who doesn't want to believe you to not believe you. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. when I'm writing online, someone will come back to me and be like, well, I didn't believe that because of the adverb. If she would have used a different word other than slowly, I might have believed it, but the slowly threw me off. So you feel like you're trying to create a bridge to a person who's just standing there with a match, Uh just waiting to burn it down. When I was drawing it, I realized that I could just get out of that whole equation cuz I could just put it out there and if people if people want to see it they can. It's just it's like eavesdropping. Opening that book is like eavesdropping on a bunch of conversations. If they want to hear it, they can. If they don't, then they have to shut the book, but what they can't do is that tell me like I almost believed you.
2: Uh-huh.
4: Except you made me not believe you. This is my best hope at getting someone to just understand what it's yeah. like to be in this body with that kid.
1: Uh, we're talking to Mira Jacob. Her new book is Good Talk, a memoir in conversations. One of the uh, sort of parts of your life that's laid out in the book is the fact that your family, your mom and dad, uh, uh, met in India. They were in an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. They came to New Mexico, like you do, and were, what, as by your estimation, the, you were like the third family, the third Indian-American family to ever show up in New Mexico.
4: Yeah, that's what the first two say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and that's where that's where you grew up. What was that like for you?
4: I mean, it was really funny growing up in New Mexico and being this kind of Indian because you would say, I'm Indian, and people would be like, Hopi? Mm. You know, like, there's a, there's, a, there's a place for Indians in New Mexico, and it was that. And then when they found out that we were from India, they were, you know, it was just sort of the... It was one of those things, it was, a, it was definitely a different time in America, there was a different kind of curiosity um, about us, but also we were literally half a world away from where my parents were born and raised, so it was just us, it was just us and really those other two families, <laughs> yeah. just kind of in this very sort of tight community with no one else around us that understood what that was like for a pretty long time.
1: Not to, in any way, make this like a white hero story, but you did have this teacher when you, you gave this, this speech for a Daughters of the Revolution yeah, competition, the... Yeah. and you had this teacher in New Mexico who, as a reader of the book, I was like, this is not going to end well with this person, and I was surprised at, at, at how that story ended.
4: So Ms. Morell. Was this wild teacher that I had, and um, she was one of those people that like everything you did was kind of wrong. And she, but she always kind of yelled at you for everything in the same tone of voice. And she had tons of rules, like you may sharpen your pencil exactly once. What? Um, Or you may only go to the bathroom during recess. It was just all of these things. And then one day she came to us with the Daughters of the American Revolution essay contest and and she said, We're going to enter this. And of course, I entered, I ended up writing an essay about um, it was Tools of America was the topic that year. I wrote about hammers. I don't know. (laughs) Um, but the weird thing is I won. We, I won that, that essay contest, and the next week she was like, Mara Jacobs, you have won the Daughters of the American Revolution <laughs> contest. We are going to the, to the luncheon. I have sent in your picture. And she was clearly really proud of me. And it was like the f- first time in my life she would ever liked me, so I was really excited. And then we go to the luncheon, and we get to the place, and it's a dry cleaners. And she goes, hold on one minute. And she gets out, and she goes to the pay phone. And then I just, you know, I was like 11. And I was just watching her over the over the dashboard, and she was on the phone, and then she hung up, and she was on the phone, and she hung up. And then she came back to the car. She was shaking. And she started the car, and I was like, are we in trouble? And she was like, we're going to where the Daughters of the American Revolution luncheon is. And she drove us across town because it was in a totally different place. Mm. And she marched us in there, and... um. And the whole time I was, you know, I didn't actually understand what was happening. And I read the piece. And then um, afterwards she, we went to back to the car and she seemed pretty upset still. And when we got in the car, she didn't start it. And she just turned to me and she said, I need to tell you something. You are an American. Don't you ever let anyone tell you that you aren't. And I was like, oh, man, who did I let tell me I wasn't an American? Like, I, you know, I, yeah. I kind of went to that little kid place. of like, hi. Hey. Um, and she grabbed my arm, and she's like, do you understand me? You're an American. And I was like, yes. Um, and it was, this, it was actually this moment that I have to say I didn't know. That's one of those conversations that used to wake me up in the middle of the night because sometimes you have a conversation like that, and then a lot of them are in this book where something really haunting happens, and you don't know quite what went wrong, but something went wrong, and, like, the amount of shame that you feel about it makes you not look at it ever. And then one day when I was 19, and being, like, super 19 and staring at a lava lamp, I was like, whoa, Miss Morrell. Because I just, I was like, she was standing up for me. It just, it kind of, it clicked in very, very late, where I was like, oh, oh, they gave us the wrong directions. Like, all of that didn't occur to me until much later. But she was the kind of woman, one of the things that I think about her all the time is that I learned that day, and it took me a while to sort of metabolize this, but I learned that day that there are two very different kinds of patriots in America. And one is the patriot that tells me this country will never be mine. And the other is the one who says right from the get-go, this country is yours. Yeah.
1: All right, we got to take a uh, quick break. This is LiveWire from PRX. We're talking to Mira Jacob. Her latest book is Good Talk. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, special thanks this episode to Stephanie Johnson of Portland, Oregon. Stephanie is part of the LiveWire member community and has been generously supporting the show with a donation each month. We are so thankful for the support, Stephanie. It's how we're able to do this show week in and week out. So huge thanks to Stephanie Johnson. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are chatting with writer Mira Jacob. Her latest book is Good Talk. Um, One of the things that you talk about in the book, too, or I I should say I guess you show us in the book, it's a graphic novel, is your your dad um, passing away. He was a doctor. Very by-the-rules guy. But at the end, you actually got him to agree to smoke weed. Yes. And you guys smoked weed together. We
4: did. Yeah.
1: It was a beautiful moment in the book.
4: (laughs) Thank you. Well, the funny thing is, though, is I always thought that if I smoked weed with my dad, for some reason, that to me was like the pinnacle of being an American. (laughs) So... With my dad, and I should say, I should, there is a conversation that didn't make it into the book. There was a time when my dad was telling me and my brother about smoking pot, and I can only ever talk about my dad with his accent, which I love. And by the way, I had an Indian accent until I went to school in America. So my dad, when he was telling us about this, was like, I have tried to marijuana. Nothing happened. And my brother goes, well, dad, you got to try it a few times. So he's like, excuse me. And I was like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> But he goes, he goes, one of the nurses gave it to me and I went to the top of the hospital after my shift and I smoked the bag. And my brother goes, you smoked the bag? And he was like, I did, I smoked the bag, but nothing happened except I was driving home and I was listening to the BGS. <laughs> and I suddenly understood how one brother is singing to one other brother who is also singing to one other brother. <laughs> That guy got high. Oh <laughs> like, dad, you were so high. And he's like, I was not high. Was like,
1: <laughs> oh man. Speaking, okay, speaking of parents, though, in this book, there's also a big component of it, which I think so many people listening to this on the radio right now can really identify with is trying to navigate the world with actual parents or in-laws. Who are embracing a kind of political worldview that many of us find just absolutely reprehensible and really dangerous and it kind of it turns out that your your in-laws who, who you clearly have a lot of affection for and they love you and your husband, and they love your son a lot, but they're you know supporters of the current president and seemingly pretty stridently so. Yeah. How, how, how is that going for you guys?
4: <laughs> I will tell you how it's going now, which is interesting. I sent this book to them um, before I put it out in the world. And my mother-in-law called me and said, we read the book. Um, it's, a, it's a very good book. We're not ready to talk about this. Mm. We love you very much. And that's just where it is. That's just where it stayed, and it's, um, it's a complicated place because I think that when you have those kinds of leanings, you feel that love is the opposite of racism, and I think when she was saying that, she very much felt like she was, you know, when I bring this up with her, when I say this, this man is changing my life, changing my son's life, this country is changing in a way that is terrifying for both of us. And many of my friends, her, her thing is like, well, he's just not really racist. And, and so I think for her, when she was talking about it, um, it was a little bit like, you know, we love you, and love is the opposite of that, and if I love you, I can't be racist. And the thing that I've had to really grapple with is this idea of love just isn't the opposite of racism. It's just not. You can very much love somebody, you can very much like somebody, you can very much have all the brown and black friends you want and still be deeply racist. It is not this kind of ogre's unkindness. It's a very constant blindness and an inability, an inability to sort of check yourself in a real way and to look at the hard part. And so um knowing that that's the situation. I mean, I know that's a situation and I also know she does love me. And so I just have to kind of keep myself in a world where I hold on to both of those things at the same time, which sounds kind of like an endless martyrdom, but I don't actually think of it that way. I think of it as, um, I think of it as like the one true act of resistance I can do. And I think that idea that like you can no longer speak with that person, because I can no longer speak with my less in the way that I used to, but I have this, I hold a place for the idea that we might one day be able to, because hmm. that for me is the, the one way I, I can be this person who resists. Like That hope is the thing that is mine that imagines a better future than all the different ones that are being locked away from me right now.
1: Well, Mira Jacob, it's been so great having you on. Great job on the book. It's called Good Talk, A Memoir in Conversations. Mira Jacob, everybody, right here on Livewire. <laughs> this is Livewire Radio. The last time we had our musical guest on the show, she was performing with Pink Martini, and honestly, it's very hard to do this, but she kind of stole the musical show from the rest of them, and God, I hope Pink Martini is not listening to this right now. She's also performed at Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center, and we're so excited to have her back. Please welcome Edna Vazquez to Livewire.
2: Su mismo canto, pita en la cajita con lindas mantas de que es tu canto. De dos sirenitos muertos viene pelado y bien, empenado, bien empenado. we yeah.
1: Thank you, Edna Vasquez. the new EP is Besa Memucho. That's gonna do it for our show this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Tim O'Brien, Mira Jacob, and Edna Vazquez. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Special thanks to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival.
0: Laura Haddon is our executive producer, Lauren Masterson is our development director, Tim Harkins is our production director, and Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Chet Leister. And our on-air mix is by Corey Shrepel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio.
1: Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank members Elena Lake of Portland, Oregon, and Trent Finley of Happy Valley, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.